Hey there, and welcome to GlobeMed Talk, where we bring you stories from the GlobeMed Network and the movement for global health equity. My name is Christine Badenis, and I'm the Communications and Development Manager for GlobeMed. In this episode, Communications intern Katrina Green spoke with GlobeMed at the George Washington University alum, Alex Moran. Alex is a PhD candidate at the University of California, Los Angeles, and has done research on HIV. He talks about his academic career path, how to work in partnership for research, and finding a passion in global health. We're always so inspired by what our alumni are able to do in the movement for health equity using the foundation they get from their GlobeMed experience. The work of GlobeMed is long-term work, where sometimes we're only able to see the impact after a student graduates. If you'd like to learn more about the GlobeMed model, check out our website at www.globemed.org. And now, here's Kat and Alex. Thank you so much for joining me today. Cool. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Alex Moran. I was in the George Washington chapter of GlobeMed from 2011 to 2014. And I was the communications director for part of my time in the group. I think it was a couple of years After I finished at GW, I worked in analytical chemistry for a year before going back to school at Johns Hopkins for my MSPH in global disease epidemiology. From there, I started working at URC, a global health firm and USAID implementing partner. And I'm also currently a PhD candidate at UCLA in epidemiology. With my work at UCLA and Hopkins, I've been lucky to work with a number of community-based clinics working specifically in LGBTQ health. And most of my academic work has focused on HIV in these sort of like key populations communities. What does URC stand for? It's University Research Company. Originally, it was started in the 60s among a group of college professors. And sort of the goal of the organization was to bring data and sort of analysis into the global health setting and into these sorts of global health initiatives. So at the time, it was a smaller organization. Now the company works in a number of countries doing infectious disease projects, global health security, maternal and child health, and health system strengthening. So can you tell me a little bit about your partnership experience with GlobeMed during your undergraduate? Yeah, definitely. We were really lucky at GW to sort of see a breadth of partnership experiences. So Uh, During the first part of my time in GlobeMed, we were working with a medical student group at the National University of Rwanda uh, doing maternal and child health work, which included maternal health education sessions and an economic empowerment component for women um, in the education sessions. So essentially after completing the sessions, women were given livestock and access to community farming and a co-op fund for emergency expenses. I was lucky enough to go on a grow trip in 2012 to work with our partners in person, which really did sort of invigorate my passion for global health and for public health more generally. Uh, So after we successfully transferred management and programming fully to the local partner in partnership with, you know, GlobeMed HQ, of course, we were partnered with a different group in Uganda called Set Her Free, which I believe is the current partner with the GW group still. That's awesome. So building on what you just said about your growth trip experience, what made you decide to pursue epidemiology? I think about the growth trip a lot. It was really instrumental in sort of like defining my interest in public health. Like I knew I had an interest, but sort of going and doing really helped solidify that. 
So, you know, I have a quantitative background in chemistry uh, from my undergrad, and I've always been interested in data analysis, numbers, problem solving, critical thinking, all of this. Uh, so originally, I thought I'll get my chemistry degree and go to, you know, to med school. But after the growth trip, I really had to step back and think, like, what are my, my goals and my interests within health? And sort of where do those actually fall? And then, you know, the idea of this population level work was really interesting. And the idea of using data to understand the distribution of disease burden seemed very cool. So I decided that sort of like within the space of public health, which is where I knew I wanted to be after the grow trip, epidemiology was a natural fit to combine my very quantitative interests with my interests in critical thinking, in global health, in sort of programmatic implementation and all of that stuff. So it all sort of came together, but the, the grow trip certainly did spur that, that interest. That's really cool. I love that perspective on how you got into it. So can you tell me about the research that you've pursued internationally, especially as part of your master's through Hopkins? Yeah, so the, the master's was interesting. Sort of the, the first year we were in Baltimore doing all of the classes and all of that stuff and sort of, you know, learning a bunch and sort of getting all of this insight on these really specific topics. But then for the second part of the master's, I was working with the Johns Hopkins Center for Public Health and Human Rights and I was based in Lome, Togo, for my practicum work for about, I think, five or six months. So I was largely helping with startup for an implementation science study. And I was looking at sort of improving sustained HIV viral load suppression among key populations in the HIV epidemic, specifically men who have sex with men and female sex workers. And in Togo, both of these groups are pretty highly stigmatized from both a legal and social standpoint. So there were a number of factors that we had to consider in the study startup and implementation just to ensure everyone's safety and sort of like actual participation in the study. Uh, so my work focused on working with the local IRB in Togo for ethical approval, uh, maintaining relationships with local and international NGOs, uh, working with the national laboratory, training interviewers, and monitoring data as they came in. And I will say, you know, this is my second experience after GROW as far as on the ground sort of in-country experience. So I had all of this theoretical knowledge that that we had learned in, in classes at Hopkins, but it was really only my second time going to a site where something is happening. And it was really intimidating at first, right? Because it's we've learned all about these things, but now it was sort of like, well, go and do it. So it was certainly intimidating, but it was really exciting to sort of go and, and apply these things in person and in practice. So yeah, definitely felt scary at first saying like, I have to go talk to, to whom? Sort of to the IRB. But, you know, after, after getting over that and then sort of being asked to to do those things and to, to take ownership of those things, it was it was empowering to be able to sort of work in partnership with our in-country team to sort of help get things done. So that was super exciting. And then connected to the master's, but just after the master's, connected in subject area, uh, I was doing some short-term work in Timor-Leste, in which I was helping with a global fund funded HIV prevalence study among men who have sex with men and transgender people in Timor-Leste. So this study used a common sampling method for hard to reach groups called respondent-driven sampling. So I was helping mostly with administering this sampling method, reviewing data as they came in and helping with some day-to-day -day management of the study team. So that was sort of coming off of Togo, I felt a little more empowered, but then it was even more of a sort of go ahead and 
make it happen sort of situation. So sort of using the previous experience to give you a little comfort in taking the next big step that feels really scary has been sort of the, the trajectory of that so far. Yeah, I feel like we don't talk enough about how intimidating that can be and hearing from someone who has been there and done it and felt that fear and then gone on to keep working and pushing. That's something that a lot of students, I feel like, need to hear in their undergrad, but like it is possible. Right. No, and I, I think it's something that is, you know, like when we talk about leaving your comfort zone, it, it truly is uncomfortable to do that, right? Like, you know that this is the right thing and you're very interested in the work and you have the confidence in yourself that you can do it, but that doesn't mean you can't, you, you don't feel sort of nervous about it, right? To say like, I'm really so invested in this that I don't want it to go wrong, but allowing yourself to go and do it and to sort of watch yourself do it is is exciting and that's really part of it is sort of doing something that feels scary at first and then seeing the outcome and then you know sort of being excited that you've done it or that you've failed and you've learned something so either way it's sort of just part of the process and in, 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 you know in any case in any sort of growth process I think. Yeah, absolutely. And you've mentioned working with LGBTQ groups in countries where that may not be the easiest or the safest. So how do you ensure that your work is in partner with and not harming the populations you're working with? I I think it's a really important question and it's really an essential point. And this is, you know, with any public health work, any research work that involves human subjects, it's you know, the the beginning of this conversation is when you define the research question. So when we think about a research question, or when we think about improving some type of health outcome, even defining the need needs to be in partnership with the population at hand. So we can't assume to know better, or even as well as people who've lived the same experience. Uh, So we need to listen from the beginning to even understand what might be a good research question, or what might be an issue the community faces. Uh, So from there, once you've worked in partnership with the population at hand to understand what is the issue, what, in your opinion, needs to be fixed or improved, then you can sort of start working together on defining a plan or a question to ask, you know, and especially when dealing with stigmatized or marginalized populations, like I do in most of my work, it's important to form partnerships with local organizations who are already doing this work on the ground. Uh, So in any of these experiences, but in in Togo, for example, we were working with a local NGO that already had these really good relationships with the MSM community, for example, and had drop-in centers for MSM to get health services without fear of arrest. And they had uh, local community leaders who were already engaged and who already we're on board as far as understanding sort of the value of these research questions that we were coming up with in partnership with this local group. So that sort of trust is built over time and that sort of network is built over time, especially in a place where there is a good deal of marginalization at hand and a good deal of security risk for individuals who might be participating in whatever program is at hand. So understanding that and from the beginning, defining it as a partnership and defining the work as something where I am sort of invited in as needed to help with something is really essential, right? It's not me as someone who doesn't live there, who doesn't live that experience coming in and saying, this is what we must do to solve this problem. It's 
listening and going in and saying, what can we do to help you achieve your goals? And how can we formulate that in a way that is something that will give it the most attention as possible so we can study further or so we can bring more funding in or help you achieve your goals? Because people know these organizations have been doing this work for a long time and, and really know the priorities better than anyone who's coming in could ever really know them. Definitely. So do you often find established groups in like a certain area or country that you are looking to do research in? Or do you wait for like partnerships to approach you? What is the process of like finding groups to work with? I think it depends and it depends on the type of work. So a lot of research work is sort of built on ongoing relationships in which there's some type of I mean, in a lot of cases, at least with US-based universities, there's some type of funding opportunity that's available or some type of partnership that already exists with a local organization. And then you can sort of use that to the advantage of the local organization to say, hey, there is this type of call for funding that will allow us to answer a question that looks like one of these things. Is that a need? What kind of needs do you have? And how can we fit that into current funding priorities? And then there's also a setting in which you can sort of be approached by a local group. I have been less involved in in things like this. Usually I come in uh, to do sort of study implementation, but from the partnership side, I think a lot of it is based on existing relationships. I think if a stranger comes up to a local organization and says, hi, we'd like to research you, there's not a lot of uh, buy-in for that. So I think all of these things do take time. And it takes sort of forming those relationships through work and otherwise to say, you know, this is the work we've done before. We're really invested in this. How can we help? Versus saying, you know, hi, there's this funding opportunity. Do you want to work together when you've never sort of worked with this organization? So I think that there is, it's an important line to sort of walk to understand how do we use what is available to us in the best way in a way that is going to sort of be sustainable for the community and not a situation where you come in and say, hi, we've never met. Do you want to work together? And then you sort of fly in for a couple of years and then leave forever. So I think a lot of that is just built over time by nature of it being community focused and sort of sustainable in the sense that you want to actually make sustained health outcome gains in whatever place you're working. So in this research experience, has any of your experiences led you to question your beliefs or values personally? I think this is a really interesting question. Uh, So, you know, when I started this kind of work, when I joined GlobeMed, for example, the overarching goal was to sort of help and to sort of do something in the medical field. And, you know, during this, during my career, I've had been lucky to have some really great advisors and colleagues who have been able to direct and refine that energy into something that is informed and grounded in local context. So essentially, you know, if these were simple problems, there would not be a need to keep doing the work. And the reality is that there are so many dimensions to any global health problem. Uh, So to answer your question, yes, I think my beliefs and values have been questioned and that I've been asked to think bigger and to understand the intersectional nature of this work. And to realize that these problems, which might present purely as health issues, are embedded in racial, ethnic, religious, social, and political systems, which are really inextricable from whatever possibly specific problem might be at hand, right? So all of these things are linked. Nothing is simply 
an HIV problem. Nothing is simply a tuberculosis problem. Everything is inextricably linked to these really deeply embedded systems that exist and that differ in all of these different contexts. So that has really been the biggest change or challenge to say, I'm here to work on this HIV project. And it's like, you're really here to sort of see how this fits into the larger social structure and how you can sort of make as much of a benefit as possible uh, within those structures and see the extent to which those structures are affecting the health outcomes and what other points need to be reviewed or looked at or studied to actually make an impact on HIV, for example. That's so interesting. I was listening to something yesterday talking about how we have to look at history in different lenses, but like this is also future research and the present moment and how just no problem is as simple as we try and frame it in our minds. It's all very intersectional. Right, for sure. Going on from your experiences in your master's, you recently became a PhD candidate at UCLA. What led to this decision? (laughs) It's been a process. Becoming a PhD candidate, I guess, has been a a journey. Uh, So I really have enjoyed the work during my master's. I learned a lot in a short amount of time. It was definitely like drinking from a fire hose, right? There's all of this information, all of these professors that are doing this really interesting work. The academic culture is interesting in that sense, and that you have these very passionate people who've been doing this specific work and making progress in this very specific field over their entire career. I kind of always knew I would get a PhD. It's always a goal of mine, but At the end of the master's, I wanted to take some time away to work in the field and sort of apply the knowledge. So after doing a few years of more implementation and programmatic public health work at URC, I knew I wanted to continue down the path of problem solving implementation. And I sort of honed those interests and said, what exactly is the field, the specific field of study I'm interested in? And what are the specific aspects of that that are passions for me? So after I was able to more specifically focus those interests. I said, you know, it's time to get a PhD, take this to the next level to really sort of go to the next step. So I sort of waited until I needed to do it, to do it. So I said, you know, I think it's time. I was happy with the master's. I did a lot of really interesting work at the master's level, certainly. And then I said, well, you know, I'm really happy answering these questions and I'm happy doing this. And then I said, I sort of wanted to start defining the questions and start thinking about what are the new directions and move in that direction. The PhD became sort of an apparent need. So I, you know, it's, it's been a process, but that's sort of how it went. And can you tell me about that work through URC? Yeah, for sure. So I've been at URC for about five and a half years and I've worn a few different hats When I first started, I came in as a program officer, and I gave broad technical support to a number of our projects in Southern Africa and Southeast Asia. This included things like report writing, development of standard operating procedures, technical reports, going to technical meetings and conferences, and working with our in-country teams on different technical needs and document review and all of these other things to keep the technical aspects of the project moving in a cohesive sort of direction as needed um, as sort of a support role. 
So as I was beginning the PhD, I moved into a technical advisor role, which is my current title, uh, where I do more specific technical assistance and data analysis for some of our malaria and TB projects in Asia. So in this role, I get to really dig into certain data problems, whether that is doing analyses for peer-reviewed manuscripts, uh, sitting on conferences and panels to talk about our different analyses that we're doing, or actually working on developing and improving data collection, management, and analysis systems. So it's been a very interesting progression in that sense, and I've really been able to work on a number of projects, but I really do enjoy all of these different opportunities to look at data systems and to say, how can we empower our in-country teams to most easily and most accurately and most efficiently collect data for either performance reporting or clinical data for understanding changes in health outcomes and all of this? And how do we use those data to communicate to our funding organizations and to local health departments and to the community about those results. And that's a non-trivial process. So understanding, defining our audience, which is you know, usually different audiences, and then distilling those results into different groups. So everyone can sort of understand at the right level what is going on and what is the impact of this work. So something I'm really interested in personally, you keep mentioning like data systems and working with very large data sets. So I'm curious how like coding and processing comes into your work. Do you have any advice for students and how they should approach learning coding and computer science related skills if they're interested in your field? I think it's a great point. So this is something that it it didn't take me by surprise. I knew it was going to happen, but you need to have some type of statistical package knowledge to really do this quantitative epi work. So at Hopkins, we comprehensively learned Stata, and that was great. Stata has some really huge advantages for certain sampling methods and certain uh, analyses and like causal inference. So it's a really great statistical package. It's as far as some of the other options, relatively inexpensive. And some places use it, especially in social sciences. So I started out learning that. I like it just because it's so familiar to me. But then I also, at this point, am mostly using R to code. It's a very flexible language. You can do anything in it pretty much, and you can really present data visually very nicely. So I started learning that probably right after the masters around then. I use that pretty much every day at this point. The other option too is is Python. I think a lot of things are moving toward that, maybe less specifically for epidemiology, but for big data sets for when we're looking at doing data transfers and pulling data through APIs, Python is incredibly flexible. Essentially, at this point, it is, it's always going to be helpful to learn something like that. So R and Python are both object-oriented. They're not very different in that sense. You can learn, they're, they're different, you have to learn them, but they are both very useful to have, I would say. And I think having that type of coding experience will be useful and as a differentiator to, to sort of give you that quantitative edge. And I'm usually using, usually coding something every day for any type of analysis. So it is it is an integral part, but there are certainly things to do if you don't want to code. But if you do have an interest in these quantitative epi 
analyses, having that coding experience will really set you up for success and will really sort of start you out on the right foot, I guess. Thank you. I just know that that's something I've heard the field of public health in general moving a lot towards. Yeah. Back to GlobeMed, <laughs> many partnerships in the GlobeMed network take place in rural populations, including my personal one. I'm at the University of Rochester chapter, and ours takes place in rural Odisha, India. And some of your research has included medical service provision for things like TB and HIV to rural populations. What challenges have you faced in these situations, and what have you learned from this? Yeah, this is a great question. And it's really a reality of global health work. And even, you know, public health work in the US, I think there are some correlates. So there are certainly a lot of challenges, but also a lot of opportunities in these rural settings. Most of my work, as we've been talking about, has focused on the data collection or analysis aspects. And most of these challenges are connectivity based. How do we get data from a rural area to a central repository? in a reasonable amount of time such that we can act on them while they're still relevant. There are a lot of technical solutions to this these days, but they usually still involve some movement of people with offline data from the rural areas to an area with cell network coverage or something where they can make an upload. And what I've learned from that is that generally, regardless of any technical solution you can dream up, you need to have people who are empowered to do these jobs. There is no substitute. So the essential point from this is that people are moving data and people are ensuring data quality and people are making these data transfers. So there's no substitute. There's no technical solution that will ever replace that in a lot of these settings, unless satellite phones become very cheap. But then you still have to deal with this issue of data quality and just the it's it just can't be overstated that people who are empowered to do these jobs are always going to be essential and that type of training and mentorship and capacity building will always be of the utmost importance regardless of whatever technical solution you can throw at a problem and then i have another thought on this too i did some thinking about this the other aspect of this in rural areas when you think about research or program implementation is the idea of awareness building and access to services. You know, how is TB spread? How is HIV spread? How is malaria spread? And what happens if you have symptoms of these diseases and what do you do? So these challenges are really reliant on task shifting. How can we give someone the right level of training such that we can have a village representative who can recognize symptoms, give a rapid test if it's available, and then make a referral to a health center if it's needed. We do some interesting work with this at URC with our village malaria workers, and it's proven very effective for bringing care to the community level and using limited resources effectively. I think both of those aspects, we have technical aspects, and you also have these like programmatic, awareness building, access to services aspects. And all of these things rely on really strong training, capacity building, and partnership. So I think it can't be overstated the importance of a really good capacity building, partnership, and mentorship in these settings. Oh, I love this question. I'm really excited for your answer. Do you have any travel tips as someone who has lived in or traveled to 43 different countries? Sure. Yeah, I think there are 
so let me start with the idea that it is really important to read about the place that you're going to. I mean, just from the idea of like, what food am I going to look forward to, but also what social, political, health, historical context am I walking into? Because, you know, it's really important to build that. That's another aspect of partnership, right? Is sort of understanding uh, the context that you're walking into and understanding just how things work. You know, understanding all of those things is, is really essential as an experienced economy class flyer internationally. <laughs> I would say that I am always drinking water and eating as much as I can when I'm on flights and sleeping as much as I can when I'm on flights. It's really, it, it doesn't get, it doesn't ever feel shorter. So you can sleep on flights. It's like a huge benefit to you in the field. <laughs> that should really be like a line on the resume. Rested after flights or something. You know, those are just the sort of like mundane aspects of it. But I think really the overarching thing, the thing that served me best is, is doing a lot of reading and taking a genuine interest in the place I'm going. I was in Kyrgyzstan a couple of weeks ago for work and previously I had been there once before. So the first time I went, I had never really heard of anything aside from the name of the country. So I did a lot of reading, understood at least to an extent, the historical, political, social context and all of that. And it really served me well as far as being able to work with our team in country to sort of build relationships and build partnership. And then also gave me an opportunity to know that I could go to see this beautiful mountain range that was like an hour outside of the capital. Helped me use my free time to my advantage to say, well, now I can go do this cool thing because I've read about it. So I think, you know, from a personal aspect and also a professional aspect, there's a lot to gain from doing even a little preparation like that. Definitely. And do you typically use translators when you're in, when you're traveling? Yeah. So in Togo, I, I speak French. So in Togo, we were just speaking in French. And then with my current job, a lot of our staff, most of our staff speak English. In Kyrgyzstan, we usually have a translator, although our staff are pretty capable in English too. But a lot of times it's just when we get into very technical language that we would bring in a translator for certain aspects. And then any large meeting where we have people from a number of countries, we usually will have simultaneous interpretation for whatever languages are needed. So it's usually like that, but we try to, if there's someone who speaks the target language natively or fluently, then we usually would pair them with that type of project or in-country team to facilitate that communication. So I've worked with some of our French-speaking teams. And then, of course, in Togo, I was, I was working with that team. We try to minimize that to the extent possible, just because it is nicer to, to speak directly to someone. And back to your previous answer, I know that, of course, reading and learning about the place that you're going to is huge. But I also know that for Grow Interns, something I wanted to mention is the alumni network for GlobeMed, talking to people who have been there and who experienced what you are going to experience similarly firsthand. I know that that has been huge for interns. And I'm sure that even working in partnership with advisors and stuff for your master's people who have been in similar shoes yeah and I completely agree with that and I think even when I was doing when I was preparing for my grow trip we were lucky enough to have the previous grow trip people at our disposal they were really helpful in giving recommendations we would stay at the same house so they said this is what it's going to look like this is what to expect 
this, this, and this place are good to go to. This is, these are the different personalities you'll be working with. This is this type of person. This is like where the state of things is. And that type of firsthand experience is absolutely, you know, vital and is, is great to have. I mean, things like the alumni network, if you're lucky enough to have returning grow volunteers or interns who can give that experience, that is really the best way, best way to do it. Um, someone who's had the firsthand experience of what you're walking into, that gives you a lot of confidence to understand what am I going to be doing? What are, what are the expectations and how can I meet those most effectively? And like unexpected challenges that they may have had that you can learn from huge. Right. Yeah. Something I think that's super important to talk about is incorporating self-care. How do you incorporate self-care into your schedule? I think it's really easy to overlook this. A lot of people in this field are very passionate and very focused on the work, which is great. But to be most effective with that, you do need to take time for yourself so you don't burn out. You need to know yourself to the extent that you can understand when you might be starting to burn out and and really just prioritize taking time. I know whenever I travel for work, I keep a regular workout schedule and I am pretty strict about making sure I have access to a gym or some other venue to work out. And I do try to protect that time when I'm traveling just to, to make it a priority for myself to say, you know, I will be doing this. I need to do this. I'm offline for this hour or something and just make it happen because the consistency within that and the familiarity it has and the routine that that brings is really helpful for me. I always protect that time and I always make sure I leave time to have some sort of physical activity when I travel, just because it is beneficial in so many different ways, mentally and physically. And then, you know, again, to reiterate, I think it's important to take time off. So knowing your limit and knowing when it's time to take a rest, essential to moving forward. Like you can't be productive if you are burning out. Even from the perspective of, I want to do the best job, I want to get a lot of work done. Part of that includes taking a rest so you can still be working at 100% when you're working. You can't be 100%, 24-7, 365. So you really do need to take some time, recharge, so you can make the most efficient use of your time. It was, it's a learning process and it really is something that is easy to overlook. I think as I've spent more time doing this work, I have been more aware of that and have been better about taking time for myself, taking a rest and, and knowing that that is really the most productive way to move forward. Even if it feels like, you know, oh, should I be taking rest right now? Like if you think you should, you should just do it. What advice do you have for Globe Med students hoping to pursue a similar career path? For me, the most essential thing is to find something within public health or honestly, whatever field, but public health that you're passionate about, identify why you're passionate about it, and then keep that goal in mind when you're looking for an opportunity. So it's not about finding something that seems like it will be good for you or your resume or that you think will look impressive. You have to be able to love what you're doing to be able to excel and innovate within the role you know, how do you get there? I think meaningful networking, when you're connecting with someone and you have a specific ask relevant to that person's work, you can back up your interest with some real passion is one of the best ways to hone your interest and to think more about what's out there. So I'm interested in this, this, or this, or I've done a PubMed search about research interests and newspapers are coming up with these authors. 
reaching out to those people to say, how did you get here or what did you do? And what was your trajectory like? And understanding what that path looks like is really helpful to understand the path that you might wanna take. So looking at people who are role models or people who are doing the work that you wanna do and emailing them or talking to them on LinkedIn or something and saying, how did you get here? What was the path for you? What did you think was a good experience for you at the time that you liked? And taking that not as you know canon, or dogma, but saying like, oh, that's a good suggestion and collecting those different opinions and those different thoughts and then doing what feels right to you is probably going to be the best way about it. I know applying to PhD programs, it was like, well, there are all these schools that have epidemiology programs now, but I really focused it with who are the people doing the research I find most interesting and then reaching out to them and working from there. So I say, look at the end goal or look at the end goal, but look at a goal that is reasonable amount of time in the future. And then talk to those people and say, how did you get there? What did you do? What did that look like for you? And then search within those types of experiences to find something that you have a passion for and then working from there. And I mean, the, the Globe Ed Alumni Network is a great way to do that too. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who have a shared experience through Globe Med who are doing such a wide variety of things now. So it is a really good resource to say, well, people are already doing, we're all starting from this position and now people have gone into X, Y, or Z things. And what was the path to get there? And what were the stepping stones that you took essentially? So I think that's like an incredibly useful resource. Absolutely. I love that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Alex for sharing his story and how his GlobeMed experience has impacted the way he views the world. We've put a link for a free online source to learn R and Python, the statistical programming languages Alex mentioned in the show notes. If you'd like to learn more about GlobeMed's impact, you can go to globemed.org forward slash impact to see more about the ways our alumni are building a healthier, more equitable world. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.